listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is a great day to be old. It is a great day to be of a certain vintage because the entire world seems to want to do one thing and one thing only. And that is see, see themselves when they are old. Have you seen this? The face aging app that is the latest viral craze and these things come out of nowhere. They're like waves that wash over us and then they're gone. Well, it's sweeping your social media feed. Have you done it? <laughs> You're old. If so, do you have any security concerns? Because this app requires access to your pictures. Now you can pick which picture you want. But is there reason to worry? Because the problem with that is it leads to premature aging. You see how you can self-fulfilling there. Mark Saltzman is our tech expert, and he's going to join us shortly to explain what you are giving away when you go gray with this aging app. (laughs) You're old. We're also going to spark up a look at Canada's cannabis industry. It has been rocked lately by CEO firings and hidden grow rooms. Stocks have tanked. The cannabis reporter for the Globe and Mail is going to join us and talk about whether or not the bloom is off the green rose. But we begin at Queen's Park today and a push to change the rules around organ donation in Ontario. Canada has one of the worst organ donation rates in the developed world. There are approximately 4,500 people waiting for an organ in this country. More than 1,600 people in Ontario alone are waiting for an organ. And someone dies every three days because a donor organ cannot be found in time. Now, one proposed way to change this is to move to an opt-out system, essentially negative option billing for your organs. Unless you say no, you are an organ donor. Nova Scotia recently unanimously passed a law that, once it takes effect in mid to late 2020, gives every Nova Scotian the opportunity to be an organ and tissue donor unless they opt out. This approach is a first in North America, and it's referred to as presumed consent. In Ontario, NDP MPP Franz Jelena has a private member's bill. She wants Ontario to adopt what is called a soft opt-out approach. Here she is talking just moments ago at Queen's Park about the fact that something, something must be done. 85% of Ontarians want to be donor, but only 34% opt-in. We've had education campaigns before, and we see, you know, like a jump of 2-3% in the number of people who opt-in, which is great. but we're still a long way from 85. Uh, This is an opportunity to change that. That is NDP MPP Frangelina at Queen's Park this morning arguing for a opt-out approach to organ donation, saying that all of the public education in the world doesn't move the needle. But while studies have found that countries with an opt-out policy generally have higher organ donation rates, It's not uniformly the case. Luxembourg, Sweden, and Bulgaria, for example, all have presumed consent laws, but their donation rates are even lower than that in Canada. 
Timothy Caulfield is a Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta, and he writes of presumed consent, quote, There are reasons to believe that if an opt-out system is implemented poorly or associated with even a single high-profile transplantation controversy, public trust in the system overall could suffer irreparable harm. That is what is at risk. So if we must do something, is that something possibly going to make things even worse? Ronnie Gavsey is with the Trillium Gift of Life Network, President and CEO. Ronnie, thank you for being on the program. Good to be with you. Do you support an opt-out system? We certainly support any opportunity to discuss it. It raises uh, people's concerns and interest in donation. Uh, but we would not make any recommendations without extensive public consultation. You know, there was a survey done in 2015, and two-thirds of the public in Ontario said they wanted donation to be an individual choice rather than a government-imposed requirement. But I would like to say that one of the great misunderstandings about a presumed consent or opt-out system is that it would make donation mandatory. It, in fact, does not. Uh, both opt-in and opt-out require families to consent. And a soft uh, presumed consent, which is what, uh, what was suggested this morning, is saying presumed consent but soft, meaning reaffirm with the family. You always have to talk with the family because you need medical history. But a soft presumed consent means that you go to them to ensure that they agree uh, with moving forward. So really, uh, Trillium Gift of Life approaches all families, whether they've registered or not. So we presume, because we've done so much education, that uh, they've been, that they have the information they need it and we constantly educate to bring the registration rate up because with registration uh, most of the time we get consent. Simply saying presumed consent is not a silver bullet. As you said it does have some risks and without a solid robust donation infrastructure on the ground Presumed consent, we know, will not work. Ronnie Gavsey is the president and CEO of the Trillium Gift of Life Network. Thank you so much for your perspective. Thank you. The town of Innisfil, south of Barrie, is in the international spotlight today, all because of Uber and transit. Here is part of an article published today in the Guardian UK newspaper. Innisfil is a community of 40,000 north of Toronto. It is a typical small North American town with widely spaced houses and large lots that makes efficient public transit a logistical challenge. The town desperately needed transit, and on the table, three bus routes that would cost council nearly $1 million, so they tried to think creatively. 
Instead of buses or trains, it is Uber's roving cars that function now as the transit fleet. When a rider opens the app, Innisfil Transit pops up is the cheapest option to travel between a network of popular areas called hubs, such as libraries, the recreation center, or municipal buildings. The costs per ride vary, but on average, passengers pay an average of $5, with the city subsidizing the rest. Trips outside the subsidized area receive a flat $6 discount, And two years later, the Innisfil authorities argue that this project has been a success. Ridership is high. In 2018, there were almost 86,000 trips and many residents have embraced the service. That is from the Guardian newspaper in the UK. But the article also warns that the very success of the program may yet be its own downfall. To talk more about this, I am pleased to welcome to the Alan Carter Radio Program the mayor of Innisfil, Lynn Dolan. Hi, Mayor. Hi, Mr. Carter. How are you today? I am fantastic. Tell me about the cost to the treasury of the city with the popularity of this program. Sure. So uh, Innisfil budgeted $1.2 million this year for the service. We did, uh, we, we did not want to come back and ask for more, so we provided a bit of wiggle room there. We're tracking on about 900000 for for this year. And keep in mind, that provides um, a level of service that no other transit system can provide. That It's for every Innisfil resident. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's door-to-door. The article uh, says that other cities have been in touch with your municipality to try and figure out if they should do the same thing. Is that accurate? It is accurate. We've actually come to the point where we have to start saying no to doing presentations at other councils simply because we just don't have the, the resources to do that. But we're happy to share any of the data that we have and to make sure that uh, they can make an informed decision. At that point, I would say, it you know, there's 444 municipalities in Ontario, and we're all different. And it's never been our position that this was the answer to everyone. We're in a position where we have such a large geographical municipality with nine settlement areas. The the option put forward for a traditional service would have only covered three of those settlement areas and yet still required the taxpayer to pick up the tab. So uh, that's why we chose this, but perhaps in a, in a more densely populated municipality, it wouldn't be the answer. But for us, it was the difference between no transit or or this. One of the things that I mentioned is that the very success could be its downfall, because if people take this up on a mass scale in your community, then that is really going to put a strain on your budget. Well, we found that we have uh, that it has stabilized over over the after the last adjustments that we made, and uh, and we are a growing community. There's no doubt that costs are going to rise, whether or not it was uh, an on-demand transit system or a traditional one. Um, the the number we're looking at carefully is the subsidy, the dollar per subsidy per rider, which right now is about nine dollars. And yet, when we look at other municipalities and what our own uh, transit uh, consultant told us is that we would have been looking with a traditional system about $30 subsidy per rider. Innisfil Mayor Lynn Dolan with a very interesting perspective on how to confront mass transit in 
large urban areas, or rather not large urban areas, but uh, many of the cities in this uh, province very much like Innisfil. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Alan. I want to move quickly to this uh, social media viral challenge, this face app challenge where you, you, you may have seen this now and everybody seems to be doing it, posting it. And it's a, a thing that you do where you just put your face in there and you put in your picture and next thing you find out how you, how you look when you're old. And who wants to do that? <laughs> you're old. I don't understand why anyone would want to do that. Mark, Mark Saltzman, who is a tech reporter and a specialist in this kind of thing, he understands it better than most. Mark Saltzman, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure, Alan. Thanks. Uh, first off, let me just say, in a society where we all love to see ourselves be older, <laughs> something has gone terribly wrong. Perhaps. Yeah. So just like two years ago, the Face app, as it's called, the free download for your iPhone or Android device, lets you see yourself in different ways, including what you would be looking like in your, say, 70s. And uh, yeah, I know we're such a narcissistic society. I don't know why we want to see this, maybe just a glimpse into what we could look like, but it's an app that lets you upload a photo of yourself and uh, it, you can play around with effects using artificial intelligence, whether it's putting on virtual glasses, changing your hairstyle, smiling when you're not, and looking old. So this new, uh, this hashtag face, face app challenge is trending right now on Twitter and other social platforms to see what we look like. But there could be some danger behind the scenes because it's a Russian company. They're headquartered in St. Petersburg. And the internet went into a minor panic on Tuesday night because uh, a developer, an app developer, said that his entire camera roll was uploaded when he only selected one photo. But that turned out not to be true. So this is what happened yesterday, Alan, uh, that, that a, uh, another developer and a cybersecurity expert uh, came to the defense of this app and said, okay, first of all, yes, they may be Russian, but the servers are Amazon Web S Services and they're in the U.S. Secondly, they're not uploading your entire camera roll, so that's wrong, so don't panic. You are giving consent for one photo to be manipulated, but it is true that we don't know what happens with these photos after the fact. We don't know if this is being stored somewhere, but is it any different than posting everything on social media, what we do, what we look like. I think I think the cat's already out of the bag. Well, certainly. I mean, if you're already posting yourself, you know, eating or doing whatever, I mean, what else is there left? But mm -hmm. I, I guess the question is, is there any evidence that this app, as you mentioned, has been around for a while, but is there any evidence that this app is doing something nefarious beyond taking that single photo that you're giving consent to? No. So this is, again, this this tweeter on Tuesday, Joshua Nazi, uh, Nazi, Pardon me, Nazi. <laughs> N O double Z I. Uh, I'm not implying he's a Nazi. All right. But you got to go My right Italian to the Hitler. Is horrible. Thing. Right to the Hitler. <laughs> Every so, time. Always, right? Uh, so, again, the cybersecurity experts that have since uh, followed up saying we cannot find any evidence of this being uploaded. And it's not violating the uh, Apple policy, which is notoriously strict on iPhones, Android, not so much. But apparently we are giving consent for one photo at a time for their artificial intelligence to manipulate it. So can this be done locally on your phone without being uploaded somewhere? Perhaps. Uh, but it's uh, apparently the, all the tech is on the back end in the cloud, as we call it. And that's where the, the questions come in. And, you know, couple that with alleged, you know, Russian interference with the elections and so on and so forth. Uh, people are concerned. But, hey, no one's putting a gun to your head to use this face app uh, app, as it's called. It's one word face app. But if you want, just know that if you're giving consent, we don't know 100 percent 
know what that photo is being done, but your entire camera roll is not being uploaded. Yeah. And here's the other thing that no one's putting a gun to your head to share it on every social media platform <laughs> yeah. you have. I don't need to see it. I know. It's fine. Look, it's it's crazy. It's like eerily accurate. It looks so real. Here's that the, here's the other thing. Only seconds. millennials would be interested in this because <laughs> Gen X or older, you're like, I don't really... I, I, give me an app that makes me look 20 years yeah, younger. Well, well, actually, Alan, you can do that. I, 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 it would be remiss not to acknowledge that you can also make you look old uh, younger, if right. you like. You can upload a picture of yourself in middle age, say, and uh, make yourself look 20. So that is something you can do but this whole face app challenge is all about uploading photos of you uh older and then some people who are in the media like yourself and farah and you know some some celebrities in hollywood people are taking their photos which of course are readily available and then aging them to see what you know i don't know what uh brad pitt's gonna look like in his 80s so people are doing that without the consent of the person whose photo you're using and that's a whole other ball of wax well benjamin button is spinning around somewhere (laughs) i just one last question and this is on a higher level for you, Mark, because you've been covering this and you're obviously very deeply embedded in technology. Myself and my whole theories and how I think about posting and what pictures I post and how I share has really changed, I think, even in the last 12 months. Has that changed for you at all in the last little while? It's a good question. Um, I, I've always doubted what, you know, the privacy that we're told that we're going to have. You know, when this whole Cambridge Analytica scandal blew out open, I wasn't too surprised that um, there, there was a, a big mix up and then a cover up. I still think twice about everything I upload myself, uh, but I love technology and I do trade sometimes a little bit of privacy for something I want to do for my career and I want to share something uh, on, a, on a mass scale over social media. But I know many people have since left some social platforms, so they're being more selective about what they're uploading and I encourage that. I, for one, never have uploaded when I'm away on vacation to say, hey, my house is empty. So that hasn't changed. I've always erred on the side of caution there. Um, so. I encourage others to do the same thing twice, but you know, unless you want to live in a cave and be a Luddite and all that, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to not be part of this uh, mobile revolution and digital revolution that we're in. A youthful Mark Saltzman. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Alan. (laughs) You're old. When we come back on the Alan Carter radio program, we're going to spark up the latest on the cannabis industry. It has been shaken to its core by a removal of a CEO and also the revelation of hidden grow rooms. What that means for cannabis stocks and our industry overall when we come back. It was supposed to be the industry that could not be stopped, that the growth, pardon the pun, was just exponential. Of course, I am talking about legalized marijuana. One of the things that you might not realize about marijuana and the legalization of it here in Canada is that the major companies that are growing legal weed are not particularly interested in selling it to you. I mean, sure, they'll take your money. But that's not really what's going on. The industry itself is trying to get a jump on what is expected to be a worldwide change in attitudes to cannabis. And while other countries 
begin the process of legalization. They will look to Canada. They will look to our producers. We will look to the fact that we have stringent Health Canada regulations. And suddenly, the world will want Canadian weed, and not in the way that they wanted BC Hydroponic two decades ago. But all of that seems to be unraveling very quickly. Recently, Bruce Linton was fired as co-CEO of Canopy Growth Corporation, which is based in Smith Falls. He founded that company and built it into the world's biggest marijuana enterprise. And the industry consensus on his firing is that it has resulted in a $74 million loss for Canopy. That was reported last month in the most recent quarter. You may remember that Constellation Brands put a whole lot of money into Canopy. Constellation insists Linton was not removed because of Canopy's financial performance. Instead, it's offered a vague explanation that Canopy needs a new leader to guide it through its next growth phase. Meanwhile, a whistleblower's alleged that CanTrust, another major grower, has installed fake walls in the company's Pelham, Ontario facility to hide cannabis grown in unlicensed rooms. Now, this claim emerges days after CanTrust closed that it has received a non-compliant order from Health Canada, and the regulator has conducted an audit, and now all sales of cannabis products from CanTrust has, have been suspended. The stock has plunged nearly 50% in the span of a week. And all of this is perhaps putting in jeopardy Canada's push to be a worldwide leader in weed. No one understands this better than my next guest. Jameson Burko is the cannabis reporter for the Globe and Mail and joins me on the line. Hey, Jameson. Hi, Alan. Have we squandered our lead to be the producer and provider of weed to the world? Yes, <laughs> but I'll give you a bit more than that, of course. Uh, I certainly think that that's the case at this point because, you know, our whole goal was not to sell actual cannabis around the world. I mean, that's just not feasible, and every other country that has, you know, liberalized their cannabis laws, one of the things they want to do first and foremost is encourage cultivation in their own countries. What we did want to export and what is now very much at jeopardy is our knowledge of cannabis and scaling it because nowhere in the world is there million square foot greenhouses that are actually able to, you know, avoid constant crop failure in trying to grow. It is actually very difficult to grow plant despite the fact that, you know, they call it weed for a reason. It does kind of grow everywhere. But not only that, but Health Canada, as you noted, has put that non-compliance order on CanTrust, a more, you know, now ironic name I could not think of for a company, unfortunately, um, that if essentially what the analyst community is saying about that is if they don't come down real hard on CanTrust in the form of either suspending or revoking their license, which of course would be a death sentence, for a cannabis producer, that it would send the message to the folks down south, the Americans who are trying to push for legalization there, that we don't really have our ducks in a row, our stuff together, as it were, and that will really harm the case they're trying to make to advance laws in D.C. I have toured the uh, CanTrust grow operation uh, near Niagara, and it's an enormous What's your background in drywall? Yes, that's right. I, I didn't. I didn't think to peek behind the wall. Don't go into that room, sir. Don't go over there. 
What, what, but the, the whole That's idea was journalist the whole idea was that they brought in this sort of former banking CEO to run the thing, and it was going to give right. it credibility. And now it's all shot. It it is certainly very much damaged, and it's 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 important to stress throughout all of this. You know, uh, Peter Rossio, the CEO who you know used to run Tangerine Bank for uh, what is now part of Scotia Bank, they really are. I mean, it just looks worse and worse for them by the day in terms of, you know, we uh, certainly, like the reporter on my team, Mark Rendell, who originally broke that whistleblower story uh, earlier last week, he spoke to Peter Rossio more than once now, and over those various conversations, he, of course, asked Peter directly, you know, what did you know? Did you know this was happening? Was this something that you were at all aware of? And the non-response, like, you know, you get the kind of legalese response to those sort of questions, right, of... You know, we're we're looking into who knew what and when, but you know, really, I think most people look at that and think like, well, it's a yes or no question. This is someone asking you if you knew something, you either did or you didn't, and that's something you should know right now. So the lack of response, yeah, that's not helping their whole reputational damage issue. Jameson Burko is with uh, Globe and Mail. Just last question to you: What is the future uh, for the cannabis industry in Canada? Is it shaken? Uh, irreparably at this point? I certainly wouldn't say irreparably, but at the very least, this was a wake-up call for the rest of the sector, I think, Alan, to really aggressively comply with regulations, even if that means having to produce less, make less money in the short term. I think one of the lessons that hopefully is being learned from this fracas around CanTrust is that, you know, there's really nothing worth the risk of ending up being the next can trust. Jameson Burko with Globe and Mail, cannabis reporter with uh, a look at what's going on in the sector. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always my pleasure, Alan. You have a great day. All right, smoke them if you got them, provided it's legal and licensed and grown in the right room. Welcome back to the program. Can we talk about cats? Why does it always have to be about cats? The internet is built on cats. Everybody just loves a cat video. And now this. A new study involving more than 19 million cats from across Canada in the United States suggests most of the animals continue to put on weight after they reach adulthood. And their heaviest weight is higher now than it was two decades ago. Well, let me just tell you, those that are blameless should throw the first stone. I'll tell you what, my weight is just slightly higher than it was two decades ago. But researchers at the Ontario Veterinary College at the University of Guelph analyzed 54 million weight measurements taken at vet offices between 1981 in mid-2016 to get a sense of the typical weight gain and loss pattern over the course of a cat's life. And what they found is that cats are fat. They're getting fatter. Big old fat cats. Now, this study is meant as a starting point for further research. It didn't look at what caused the changes in weight, whether or not the cats were just happy or whether they were getting fed too much kibble. Nor did it establish what a healthy weight for a cat actually is. Dr. Scott Bainbridge is a co-owner of the Dundas West Animal Hospital in Toronto. Doc, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, no problem, Alan. Thanks for having me. Are cats too fat? Yeah, they are. (laughs) 
it's uh I've been doing this for for 20 years now as a vet and uh it's it's been a chronic problem my entire career is uh having <laughs> having to deal with overweight cats for sure. <laughs> I I shouldn't laugh about fat tabbies, but what is, I mean, is it, what's the issue here? Is it just, we just love to ply our cats with food? Well, I think that's a big part of it. You know, food is love. But I, I think, there's, to me, I think we, we kind of have never really been feeding our cats correctly, to be quite honest with you. And it's a combination of that plus the fact that cats tend to be indoors and they just, they, they don't exercise long, right? So unlike dogs that are out, you know, every day getting walks and stuff like that, it's, it's, it's hard to, to kind of actually get, get a cat to move about. It's so. hard to get a cat to do anything you want. Sure, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you get the cat to exercise? I know that our cat, who uh, is a disabled cat, it's a, it's a wobbly cat. What is the official word for that? Uh, you know? A wobbly cat? So like an ataxic cat? Kind yeah. Of thing? Yeah, cat. okay. Yeah, he's got some neurological issues. Yeah, neurological. And, yeah. and, and the, the whole issue at my house is when the cat is going down the stairs, you have to wait. Okay. You have to stand there and wait for the cat to get down the stairs because otherwise the cat will fall down the stairs. No, no, I, that's, uh, that's a very respectful. Well, sure, sure. But other than chasing the cat up and down the stairs, yeah. how am I going to get the cat any exercise? So I, know, I mean, it's, it's you know, probably decreasing calories is probably a better way to go. But to increase exercise, one thing a lot of people do, they'll, uh, they'll get like little laser lights to get the cats to chase them around. Just to, anything that might get them actually interested in kind of chasing or moving around the house a little more often than they normally would, would, would is a possibility. Some people actually get another, another cat as well because... Well, no, that's not a good idea. Well, yeah, well, depending on the cat, right, kind of thing. But, yeah, but sometimes it will uh, it will increase your activity level in the house, too. Yeah, next thing you're the cat lady down the street. You know, that's what happens. <laughs> it would never end. You got it. Um, so, but what do you tell when your patients come in? Because I get this question. We talked about this today, and everybody who has a cat, which I'm surprised I'm looking around, a bunch of us have cats, uh, everybody doesn't seem to know whether or not their cat is too fat and whether or not they should cut down on feeding. What do you, what well, do you say? So I'll tell you. So I mean, it's it's uh, when we if we can get uh, a cat in the clinic when they're young. So the whole the whole thing is to, to educate the client. And for me, I think a lot of people have to realize that cats and dogs are very different. So cats are obligate carnivores and dogs are omnivores. So when you have an obligate carnivore, that cat needs to eat meat or protein, and so they like protein and fat. And what we've done is historically is we've tried to get, out of convenience, we tried to get cats onto dry food. And dry food, unfortunately, doesn't have a lot of protein in it. It's actually really high in carbohydrates. The companies kind of spray the kibbles with fat, so it kind of smells like meat, but it's not really meat. And then when a cat or carnivore eats carbohydrates, the body really doesn't know what to do with those. So so in return, they they tend to put on weight. And I have an absolute ton of diabetic cats that come to this clinic, and that, to me, is the main reason. So for me, when I can get these cats or kittens when they're young and talk to the clients about getting them on a canned product that is higher in protein and more moisture in it, I tend to see that we have less problems with obesity down the road. Really? So, because yeah. our cat is 100% kibble-based, no, none of that crap in, in the cans. Yeah, and then so again, like if you look at the, the, if you compare a dry food to a canned food, like from the same company, you'll notice that, they're, they're, that the canned one is going to be higher in protein and that the and the dry one is going to be higher in carbohydrates. And I'm not saying the cats can't have any carbs, but they the, most of their calories should not be coming from carbohydrates. So. Get those cats on that Atkins diet. Yeah, Dr. Exactly. Scott Painbridge is the co-owner of the Dundas West Animal Hospital in Toronto talking about fat, fat cats. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me, Alan. Yeah! Oh, here we go with the fat cat bashing.